Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are diving into lore of old Christmas and winter in the Ozarks, and there's a lot more to cover than you may think. We will get back to that in a minute, but first we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and about any other podcast platform you use. So what does old Christmas mean in the Ozarks? There is a lot to cover that most people do not associate with the holidays, from pyrotechnics and praying cows to burying chicken entrails under the hearth. There are traditions that are often viewed as supernatural or just flat out witchcraft if they were being performed at any other time during the year. And that's before we get to dark stories of winter, including supernatural beings in the woods. There are a lot of traditions that are mostly forgotten, that our consumer-driven world would see as dark, and some of these traditions are hard to explain. And of course, in so many cases, it's up to each person to decide what they actually mean in some cases. We'll discuss old Christmas and winter lore in a minute, but first we want to invite everyone to like and follow Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, plus we encourage you to follow the podcast. We would like to invite you to become a Dark Ozarks subscriber on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe, have your login information ready, and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 a month. Come with us on investigations, deep dive research, and topics that quite honestly are too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers to Dark Ozarks on Facebook subscriber option will be entered into a drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first run copy of the new book, Dark Ozarks, The Spooklight. Join today to be entered in that drawing. Why else should you subscribe to the private Dark Ozarks group? Yes, it does have the subscription fee, but you receive exclusive content and behind the scenes information that's nowhere else. It also helps us bring more original content to Dark Ozarks. We appreciate everyone. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts on darkozarks.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage everyone to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and their website, alwaysbuyingbooks.com, for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more, not to mention the buildings haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great food and beer and historical building with a noir past. And yes, this building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. Okay, old Christmas. Um, 
with, with uh, some dark uh, twists that most people aren't familiar with. Although a lot of people aren't familiar with Old Christmas that much anyway. Well, that is true. And uh, Old Christmas is January uh, 6th. Uh, Old Christmas Eve, consequently, is January 5th. And it all started with Pope Gregory the 13th in 1582. Yeah, Gre Gregory just decided to churn up the calendar. Although, you know, he had a bit of a reason, you know, it, it was getting further afield of scientific accuracy. So corrections were made and consequently Christmas moved. It did, <clears throat> it did. And so uh, before the Gregorian calendar, Christmas was apparently on January 6th. And mm -hmm. after the advent of the Gregorian calendar, Christmas was on December 25th. It has stayed there to this day. So apparently they must have done something correct when they, uh, they figured things out in 1582. But just because of the way uh, certainly certain nations took their time in responding and just the way that information traveled back then from 1582 well into the 1600s a lot of uh, British uh, settlers uh, essentially British Irish Welsh Scottish left the British Isles and traveled to America without having gotten the memo that the calendar had changed. Well, and eventually they just kind of added December 25th on top. And for a very long time, a lot of, a lot of these immigrants and their descendants celebrated both actually. They did. There was new Christmas and old Christmas. And it is interesting to me because there were different, um, bits of lore associated with the two dates yes um i think old christmas uh retained much more of the older pagan uh beliefs and um customs um and that didn't really change and so uh i think it becomes more uh, more tied to the season as far as the year goes I think than so. new Christmas. And I, th I think it is fair to say that as Christmas became a modern and nationally recognized holiday, interesting note that it was actually not a recognized national holiday for a long time in, uh, in the course of history, mm -hmm. uh, you know, recent American history. But as, as uh, we moved into the 20th century, uh, the December 25th new Christmas date got all of the attention by the, the larger narrative and the old Christmas, uh, January 5th, 6th, really didn't receive any attention. And I think it's a, a great example as how uh, to, to such a large degree, whatever is being discussed as part of the large narrative tends to eclipse almost everything else. Yes, particularly when business, business, retail, advertising gets involved, which focused on New Christmas and gift giving, um, aside from the religious aspects. I mean, there's religious aspects for both dates. And that's, I think, something that's important for people to, you know, for people to realize. Um, 
It is. And, and of course, January 6th is Epiphany. Yes. Uh, and so for those that follow Epiphany, this is not this is not new. <laughs> no, no. And, you know, and, and the, the epiphanal celebrations tend to vary in scope, I think. And you can, you know, folks can correct me if, if I'm if they feel like I'm wrong on this. Um, but a lot of uh, modern American Catholics, as opposed to their modern Catholics in the United States, as opposed to Latin America or um, France, uh, Spain, Portugal, uh, and Italy, see Epiphany as, as an important day, but it's one of many days that kick off the new year and, you know, cycle through. And, and again, a lot of that, that primary focus is on uh, Christmas, it is on the Advent season, and Epiphany is seen as simply the conclusion in many cases of the Advent season. In, yeah. for, in for example, uh, you know, Italy, Spain, Latin America, we have a lot of very specific epiphanal uh, celebrations and lore associated with that as a, as a standalone uh, holiday. That's true. And, you know, we hinted in, in, you know, when we started out that there, there are aspects of this that um, might be viewed as uh, supernatural or witchcraft at other times of the year. And specifically, your discussion there made me think of Belfana. Yes, yes, the Italian witch Belfana. And uh, she comes with her, with her, with her own uh, special desserts, which mm -hmm. you had me at Italian dessert. But <laughs> let me just, you know, say that. But I, I'm very interested that the, the initial trail to Bafana tends to stop cold at the, the overlap of the nativity. And I, I find that fascinating, but a little frustrating for people who are not familiar with Bafana. She's an Italian witch who on... Uh, Epiphany Eve flies through the sky, and because of course that's what witches do. And uh, so does Santa. Uh, yes. So does that make Santa a witch? There you go. Instead of an elf. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> a shaman witch. The <laughs> <laughs> the elf king. <laughs> or is it no. the witch king? Santa is the witch king of Angmar. <laughs> We're going to get hate mail now. <laughs> For anybody who wonders, I love Tolkien. Okay. Um, <laughs> but Bifana leaves treats for the children. She flies through the air. She does a lot of Santa-esque things. Mm -hmm. And the uh, conflation of a, a witch into the, the nativity narrative, it, to me, is very interesting. Maybe it's a little trite. Maybe it's very sweet. I'll leave that up to everybody else to decide. But the basic gist is that the, the wise men, the three wise men, quote unquote, mm -hmm. Reis Magos, uh, the three wise men are traveling, following the star to find baby Jesus. And Along the way, they park their camels in front of an Italian witch's house. And <laughs> as one often does, <laughs> going to. it's how I roll. And uh, <laughs> that 
Uh, apparently they stop in for some cake and candies and cookies because it is the Christmas season after all. So of course they're baking. And, <laughs> and they, they regale Bafana with the, the story of what it is that they're doing. And she says, wow, I would like to come along with you. And they're like, that's nice. The camels leave promptly at 10. And I'm elaborating just a little bit. This is why my nieces and nephews like me to tell them stories. And <laughs> <laughs> then because she is a very tidy Italian witch, she is busy sweeping up the house and she, she misses her camel. Um, <laughs> and, and then uh is is distraught over having missed the opportunity to visit baby jesus with the three kings mm -hmm. and uh so in um uh, in penitence definitely a uh a, a appropriate um and response of contrition for having uh, overlooked the church she now flies through the air on the eve of Epiphany and visits small children everywhere in celebration of the Christ child. You know, I, I like it. And there's a bit of symmetry there with how St. Nicholas has evolved because you know, children leave him get cookies and milk and now, and then she leaves them something at the end of the season. Yes, I... I like it. I, I like it a lot, actually. And uh, it's <clears throat> it just it, it to me, it's very evocative. Um, and in other Latin uh, American countries and, and, and Spanish speaking countries, um, Reyes Magos uh, are said to visit the small children and also leave them gifts in their shoes, not their stockings, their shoes. It is important on the eve of January 5th. So the kids set out their shoes uh, for candy. So don't put your shoes up, put your feet in your shoes without looking. Yes, it's very, very true. Uh, come to think of it, I actually still have my stocking up, uh, my Christmas stocking, I just realized that. Uh, my, my, my Christmas season actually runs from whenever I'm going, oh my gosh, I have to get the tree up until Emil, uh, Celtic Festival of Light. So, which is Groundhog's Day in case anybody wonders. But there is that, that. <laughs> fingers crossed, there is, there is some old lore that if you leave the greenery up, uh, particularly in the church, but in general, uh, mm -hmm. leave your greenery up past Epiphany that the goblins are going to haunt you. Yes, yes. And, and I think that is really where sort of the tradition has come for so many people of to immediately take their trees down after Christmas. Uh, yeah. They just don't realize that's the reason. Right. Uh, I apparently am <clears throat> tempting the fates and the haunted goblins because uh, my tree is still up. Yeah. What's a goblin or two? I mean, I, I actually thought it sounded kind of fun. So you know, fingers yeah. crossed it works. Just keep, keep things a little more lively that way. <laughs> Does keep things hopping. Uh, there was in the, 
Well, we'll discuss a number of these points, but in Pyrotechnics and Praying Cows, Christmas in the Upland South, which was a December 17th, 1998 article um, <clears throat> published in the University of Arkansas uh, educational website, there were a number of things that I found really interesting. I, I love the fact it was uh, a easily accessible, but uh, but pretty scholarly piece. And um, mm -hmm. well done. I, I love this quote. Um, the South was settled by Englishmen of Celtic origin, and they came from the northern regions of Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and Cornwall, uh, arriving at mid-Atlantic ports and then moving inland across America to the Wachita and the Ozark Mountains. Mm -hmm. And that's <laughs> very accurate. It is, and it is so many times, and Christmas and old Christmas is one of those key points that you start digging into the lore, it leads back to this. It leads back to these moments. It leads back to these people. And it's very difficult to understand the process. It's very difficult to understand and contextualize the lore if you mm -hmm. don't understand that reality to begin with. That's true. And, and you know, there's specific reasons that they, that they were attracted here. Um, because it was very similar to where they came from uh, yeah, that, geographically. That, that, again, being a drawn to the mountains, being drawn to the hills and hollers. And by virtue of that fact, they remained more insular and retained customs longer, um, which ironically in those same regions in the old country, um, they retained these customs much longer as well correct something about the geography itself almost seems to lend itself i think it does and there there's certainly the just the 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 pragmatic analyses the understanding that these highly rugged areas resist outside change uh, because it's hard to get roads in, it's hard to get railroads in, it's hard to build bridges in. Consequently, things move more slowly. Uh, information goes more slowly. But on a certain level, I think that's more than that. I well, I think I think the people who tend to stay in these areas tend to be more resilient, stubborn. Mm -hmm. Yes. To have to have done so, and so they become less dependent on outside forces right. not, not only just a self-reliance but just for an interior sense of self and identity yes not needing i would i would agree with that. i guess mm -hmm. <laughs> the the not needing and that that i think is is a really interesting point now we talk a lot about consumerism i think that I, I would strongly theorize that individuals with a very strong sense of self-identity make poor consumers very true very true <laughs> kind of hard to harder to sell the bill of goods to <laughs> And, and so you see uh, a lot of moving parts with that because 
the, the these particular mountain regions are you know, attract individuals with a strong sense of self. Mm -hmm. The survival within the mountains themselves further that they lend uh, add fuel to the fire if you can if you can survive and prosper and perpetuate within these spaces that gives you that much more reason to have that own internalized sense of self that then is also fueled by the lineage the yeah. this is my family this is my clan these are my people these are our traditions and building that really strong sense of resistance almost to the point and sometimes even to the point of creating pockets of culture that would seem or do seem certainly have seemed in the past alien to quote-unquote modernity or this um you know people who have much of a uh, are, are much more narrative driven, larger narrative driven people who are um, deliberately or unconsciously not resisting the, the larger uh, mass messaging. Well, I think a good, good example of that is, and I've heard it so many times of, in different facets of my career, um, that everything starts on the coast and, and comes inward all trends and that's part of it and it's not i think some people view that simply as the coast sort of get the new messages faster but that's not really it and hasn't been for a long time i just i think part of it is that as you get away from the coasts you tend to get more of that insular identity that sort of a take it take it a moment to reflect and i'll see i'll see whether it works out before i accept it attitude right and that's <clears throat> of course like like any like almost anything there's pros and cons to to both there there's positives and negatives associated throughout all of it but this clearly has contributed to the culture. And of course, it's led to the fact that old Christmas in some areas, certainly well into the 20th century, was still being celebrated in ways that could seem foreign uh, to, to the outsiders. One issue, one, one area that I, I wanted to get your opinion on, pyrotechnics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the and, and this was this was something that um is it, still pretty common throughout the ozarks which is mm -hmm. um more as transition more to christmas and and new years but especially christmas this is very new to me growing up a yankee in central illinois uh shooting off fireworks for christmas and then shooting off fireworks for old christmas and shooting up guns uh, gunpowder. I'm sure at some point there was some dynamite involved, and that just it, and and that's another thing. And, you know, early early in the 20th century, dynamite was not terribly difficult to obtain. That's true, particularly for farmers, um, mm -hmm. because they often used it to you know get rid of tree stumps, etc. Um, and then, of course, in a lot of these areas, there was a lot of mining, so you had explosives around. Um, ironically, as you say that, um, 
my son Cameron was saying the other day, you know, that um, it was telling a story and mentioned the fact that very early on his uncles had taught he and his brothers how to make bombs with explosives. So, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's just part of part and parcel, I guess. <laughs> I think it is. And it, <clears throat> you know, I grew up with stories of my grandpa you know, going to the hardware store to get dynamite for various things on occasion. Again, yeah. for like moving tree stumps and and occasionally playing ridiculous pranks um but somewhere in my growing up years it, it dawned on me i'm going here's a product that i really only know from looney tunes <laughs> and yet grandpa was able to get it for real uh that was that was an interesting thing this uh Again, coming back to this. Yeah, and I, I grew up with, you know, okay, you can do whatever, just don't do it around the house or the barn, you know. <laughs> those, those are very fair rules. They really, really are. Um, going back to this, uh, this first article, Christmas in the Upland South, old Christmas mm -hmm. was characterized by traditions that we would associate more with the 4th of July. Bonfires, gunplay, firework explosions, and, and I love this, this one of these concluding quotes, people in the South love explosions. It's part of their celebratory customs. Do you think that this goes back to the Civil War or do you think it proceeds? I think it proceeds. I mean, um, I, I think it goes bad to the old country. I mean, Guy Fawkes, for instance. <laughs> That's a good point. That is a very good point. You know, you know. A, a little, a little uh, attempted revolution by attempting to to uh, uh, blow up Parliament, you know. Right, and then consequently the celebration of having caught and executed him is mm -hmm. done with bonfires. It's done with fireworks. It's done with explosions. So and and burning Guy Fox in, in effigy. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know. You know, I think that, you know, I think, you know, I've read that there were even a few sort of very similar kinds of celebrations, you know, in Appalachia, in the Ozarks, you know, for old Christmas of bonfires and perhaps some effigies and so forth. Uh, not necessarily, I haven't found a lot of details as to exactly who the effigies were supposed to be, but, you know, they could probably be just whoever. Right. You know, at, at a particular time that someone was not happy with. <laughs> Which is, you know, is, is not a bad thing to do. It's New Year. The what what do you think that obviously we we're dealing these are celebrations that are heavily associated with the South and the Upland South. It is oftentimes mm -hmm. overlooked that the Ozarks are the furthest mountain range, the Ozarks and the Washita's are the furthest west mountain range and plateau, respectively. I do my do know my geology on that. Uh, the furthest west of the Old South. Mm -hmm. So there, there is a surprising, um, and, I, and I would say this, I think that most folks in Arkansas uh, are, are very familiar with these layers of culture. Mm-hmm. 
I think that many people, particularly in more urban areas of the Missouri Ozarks, and you know, as for, certainly as you start moving northwards, uh, Springfield, Jefferson City, etc., uh, that there is less of an understanding, less of just that that innate understanding that this is part of the Upland South. I think. Well, I think that's that's true. It becomes more of an unconscious thing um and i think at least in my area i think some of these celebrations end up getting associated a little more with just the idea of old time frontier antics um but it really came out out of that it's part and parcel the same in in a lot of instances you know mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, again, I, I'm, to me, I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated. I find the, um, the idea that the desire to blow stuff up being a part of our cultural past, particularly in association with the South, possibly in association with the, with our Celts, our Celtic ancestors to be really fascinating and honestly, pretty alluring. Oh, I, I, I do too. I, I really do, but there, there is definitely something about um, explosions and gunfire and celebrations that is almost innate. Um, and, you know, this time of year, just as much as 4th of July, I mean. Right, right. And, and so much of that celebratory aspect has just been encapsulated in in Independence Day. Yeah, for 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 modernity. And that's, uh, it's, it's interesting now, jumping subjects a little bit, praying cows. I, I, I do find this uh, fascinating. And you know, that if you, you can look at it from a lot of perspectives one of course is just you know a religious perspective of uh of um, honoring christ and the season um but then you 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 can't ignore the fact that we are we are talking about something you know innately supernatural and out of the ordinary yes yes i i agree that's and 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 uniquely magical that yes and so there there's there okay so th there's a lot of moving parts of this that that have have large to me i think larger appeal but also um speak to me on a unique and personal level uh, real quickly a lot of what we know in regards to old Christmas, it was actually recorded by Vance Randolph. Yes, yeah, or in Ozark, yes. Uh, Ozark Magic and Folklore, a book published originally in 1947 by the University of Columbia, and then uh, re it's re available for republishing by Dover, um, Dover Catalog. And a lot of bits and pieces of Vance's work or the beginnings of Vance's work for further research is actually available on Ozark Healing Traditions, uh, which is published by Brandon Weston, who's also a, a published author with, uh, with books on this type of subject. 
and uh, he's down in Northwest Arkansas. Highly recommend that you check him out and check out the website. <clears throat> um, but the, there's a lot of very unique animal lore associated mm -hmm. with, with, uh, with old Christmas. The, the most dominant or most obvious one happens to be cattle. And in short, the idea is that at midnight on old Christmas Eve, the cows in the barn or elsewhere will kneel um, in, in prayer mm -hmm. in, uh, in honoring the birth of the Christ child. Mm -hmm. And it is fascinating. I think the focused around cattle is interesting because uh, cattle throughout history have tended to be very important to feed a family, to clothe a family, to and get to get them through hard times in winter in particular. It does, it does. And <clears throat> there's a couple of points. Um, certainly, if we want to tie back to the Celts, cattle were sacred. Yes. Uh, the, the, the unique elements of, of uh, uh, cattle in lore, in Celtic lore, are, are dominant. Mm -hmm. uh, reference the cattle raid at Cooley being a, a, a notable one, but there are a number. And something else that is notable about uh, Celtic lore is the introduction of talking animals or animals acting human. That's true. That's true. You, you get that in Germanic folklore as well, but uh, very dominant in Celtic. It's something that obviously this isn't unique to Celtic tradition, but something that I believe is notable to Celtic tradition is that animals were seen as mm, vessels of divination. Yes. That and and in some cases, obviously, by you know studying their entrails, we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, but in various ideas, the idea that the animal has something important to impart, information, hidden information that is imparted on special days. I, I do love the fact that there's a number of bits of Celtic lore that are associated with talking salmon. Mm -hmm. And yes. uh, it makes me want to go find some salmon and see if they have something that they'd like to say. But it you know this is this is definitely associated just in terms of this ideas could some of the these bits and pieces of old christmas lore have come from things other than the celts yes it certainly could but we've we've established two points of connection that i think are worth looking into the first point is that so much of the upland south was settled by celtic peoples and mm -hmm. second the, the idea of talking animals, uh, animals acting as a vessel of divination, animals foreseeing the future, animals communicating important things to mortals at, at, at crucial points and at crucial, uncrucial days, uh, important um, festival eves, this type of thing is part of Celtic lore. 
very very true and, and sometimes there is a um a uh, connection with the with the cattle or livestock and in their talking or praying uh and water or wells and of course water is seen as sacred as well yes that it, it's almost almost at the level of genetic memory mm -hmm. and, and go ahead no i was gonna say i i was just agreeing that that you know that that so much of this lore was undoubtedly if it was if it got passed down it was passed down orally it was not passed down necessarily by written tradition and many many of the celtic peoples not all certainly but many of the celtic peoples who left particularly early on left the british isles early on were not necessarily even literate at that point that's true it, it very much was an oral uh oral society mm -hmm. and as i as i've said many times with the uh, understanding of the the ancient celtic civilizations it is crucially important that people understand that when I say illiterate, I do not mean uneducated or not sophisticated. Correct. Just not a written basis. They did not necessarily have a written language, but that does not mean that they were dumb by any stretch of the imagination. One, 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 one bit of lore that I, I find fascinating and again seems a bit um, magical and a bit is that uh, having two uh, day breaks on old Christmas. Yes, um, stay up for stay up uh, or get up early and reportedly see see two day breaks happening mm -hmm. on Christmas morn what what does that denote to you I, symbolic of renewal new beginnings perhaps um uh a day that maybe all things are possible there's a lot of lore associated with luck and so maybe seeing two day braids is kind of like a, a rainbow it's lucky it's <clears throat> one of the things I, I realize that this is it's not the same lore but to me it's not dissimilar in context to the green flash that's reported to be seen at oh. sunset uh, true i hadn't thought about uh, that uh, of maritime tradition which i think is is really fascinating um i'm i'm still appreciative of the fact that they put the green the the green sunset flash in at the end of I think the third, second or third parts of the Caribbean film. Yeah, uh, one of them they did. I can't made, remember which one. Made it made it mm, vastly more dramatic than it is in real life. <laughs> it is a movie. I know, and uh, I do appreciate that. Something that really, to me, is very interesting and very resonating and also a little a little sad i think for for me is that to me there's a tie-in with 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 all of this particularly with uh our, our agrarian peoples our very traditionalist minded peoples who 
I think oftentimes see themselves as a bulwark against modernity or against the secularization of society, see themselves as standing in the, in the way of a, hmm, you know, well, just secularization that, that is this desire to say, look, this date is holy. This date mm-hmm. is special, something of crucial importance, something of supernatural importance, something of, um, of magical importance occurred on this date. And these magical things are going to happen that are going to prove that a bland, gray, flat, secular modernity doesn't have it right. And I, and I think I think that's that sentiment is why a lot of the lore also is associated with things happening that bring good luck. Mm-hmm. Basically, if you pay attention to those things, you're more likely to to, to be lucky in the new year. Um, yeah. Or yeah. if you're born, you know, boys born on that on on Christmas, we're supposed to be uh, very lucky in raising cattle, things yeah. like that. Even even going so far as being able to talk to the cows. Yes. And yeah, I, I want to be a cow whisperer. I want. I know. I'm. And, and so, depending on how you want to look at this, and, and I think as is so often the case, the magical or the mundane depends so heavily upon one's viewpoint. Yes. And so let's, let's take that and conceptually run with it for a moment. Um, boys born on old Christmas can talk to cows. Okay. And from a mundane secular perspective you go that's ridiculous first of all you can't talk to cows um second of all the date doesn't mean anything right so this is just an example of a a primitive society a backward society a hillbilly society an animist society uh pick what you whatever you want but the the implication is that these silly backwards uh, rural, isolated, primitive people uh, really need to pull their head out of the you know what and get with the times. And boy, this, how how unfun! It, well, first of all, yes, um, it is utterly no fun whatsoever to live in a world devoid of magic. But you know, then then you could go and you know you could do your studies and so on and so forth that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that we can't talk to cows. I, I'm, I'm still waiting. I'm not, I'm actually surprised that hasn't been a study. Um, but maybe it has somewhere. I, don't know. Yeah, I have not done the Google search kind of think of it online. Now, at the same time, let's say <clears throat> that uh, a boy born on Christmas on Christmas, on old Christmas day, uh, grows up with these traditions that you can talk to cows. Let's say he has an affinity, even a preternatural affinity 
for understanding animals. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and this is encouraged. Uh, now, first of all, many people may have this kind of understanding, but if it isn't framed within a contextual structure, to say this has meaning, this is something that you could pursue. This is something, this is a way of understanding the world. So much of magic is a way of understanding the world around us, not quote unquote, making something magical happen. Uh, on command, so little of actual magic is on command. And so it's again hypothetical but uh this boy grows up within the structure he has a preternatural ability to uh, read animals read their body language understand their languages that is not a verbal language quote unquote as we would think of it or linguistic language and the fact is that he grows up and is able to -hmm. talk to the cows just not in the way that we would have read it right I still think it's magical. Whatever you call it, whatever you name it or however you present it, it is. Yes. There was, <clears throat> there's this great quote and this was, this was from Vance Randolph. Um, there are old men in the Ozarks today and this would have been 1947. There are old men in the Ozarks today who swear they've actually seen cattle kneel down and bellow on old Christmas Eve. Uh, but skepticism sometimes prevails even in the Ozarks. I'll just drop it there. But that uh, just that mm, the fact that that something magical could happen, I think is a really, really neat way. I think it's a very positive way of looking at the world around us. I do too. Um, And even for the most skeptical in the end what's the harm right <clears throat> what is the harm why is, is if you choose to be highly skeptical or highly secular in your approach on this is your life diminished any if i choose to believe that the animals kneel on christmas on old christmas no. i i don't think so there's the there's there's also lore of uh, of roosters crowing um it's it's very toward the end of the notes but i just had a a a personal story because i found it was is interesting and i think it was it was either christmas or new year's um my sisters went out to the barn one time at, at midnight to see if the animals did anything and the rooster started crowing oh wow at midnight and they uh they found that rather unsettling and came back to the house fair now and part of the lore though too is it made me think about it when you said they went out to see if they were kneeling is that um that if they were observed by a person they would stop that yes yes and that that you you needed to be pretty sneaky at catching them in the act that and I do I did find this that an interesting idea the idea that and, and this is this is of course of course it, it is today um, I'm you know reminded of this uh, every time I you know go to the, the grocery store meat counter and buy more more protein uh, the, that animals 
I rely on animals for food, and uh, that is simply part of uh, you know being being an omnivore with incisors. That <clears throat> whether we like that reality or not, but that even more so in, in older times, in, for for everyday people, the the connection between animals as uh as livestock animals as as uh as food being very close there was not you know yeah. 16 degrees of separation you didn't go and just find uh the nice cuts of meat laid out waiting for you you had to do it yourself it was extremely visceral it was extremely immediate yes and something that the I, story my mother would tell <laughs> the first, uh, when she, she was a child she was about seven and it was the first time her mother sent her out to kill a chicken yes and um so she has the the hatchet and the, the chicken and she starts to chop its head and she kind of hesitates as she swings and and doesn't do the deed entirely but as she says, unfortunately, sliced the poor thing's eye off. <laughs> Which it's yep. then running around the, the yard and then her mother has to come out and finish the deed. And that right. stuck with her for the rest of her life. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and understandably so. <laughs> is the these aspects of life and death for the perpetuation of life are real yes and they're real they're difficult uh they're not things that uh you know people like to think about and and even more so i think i think we're becoming even more um squeamish about it oh as, yeah as we're going rather than uh, rather than less so, which I think yep. is, is is interesting. That it brings up a um, well. I think we'll go. I, I want to go directly into hoodoo and entrails next, but I wanted to finish my my point, which is that that there's something very um, sad and heartwarming at the same time with the 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 animals praying because so yeah. we we're, we're taking we're taking it uh you know traditionalist traditional farmers uh people who are accustomed to butchering their own livestock accustomed to all of these things accustomed to this process these are not individuals who um have mm, misguided sentimentality about animals right who on this one night are suddenly attributing anthropomorphism, personality, character, um, emotion, human, truly human qualities to mm. animals as they, you know, are, are observing or saying that they observed them essentially going to church. That's, that's yeah. really what is being implied here. Well, and a very transcendent, um, characteristic as well you know not not just human behavior but something that goes beyond of belief in 
what you cannot see. Yeah. And yeah. so that's even one step further. And so that's not something that the, these farmers would jump to. No, no, or take lightly. Um, no. And which really brings, you know, up and, and, and of course, you know, was we're, we're told many times the, you know, in regards to uh, the date, uh, mm -hmm. January 6th or December 25th, that, you know, the, the Christmas celebration, old Christmas or new Christmas celebrations being associated with the birth of Christ and the idea that this is the official actual day somehow signifying that that's the reason that it has these magical powers associated with it. Obviously, we know that we don't know what day Christ was born and that the, these dates were chosen for a variety of reasons. But I think that it's really, really powerful that these dates become associated with this lore and just the gravitas and the, the magic and that, that that means something. It does, and, but a lot of that, I think, kind of leading into the next subject, is the energy that we put into those days. Yes. yes. Yeah. And that, that, there, that there are rhythms, there are cycles, and there are processes, and <laughs> um, which brings up, and, and this, it is a, it's, it's a quote that shows up in a number of places. Uh, it is in Vance Randolph's 1947 book. In some sections of Arkansas, there are people who bury the entrails of a black hen under the hearth on old Christmas. This is said to protect the house from destruction, against destruction by lightning or fire. And I know that there are some families uh, did bury chicken guts under their hearths as recently as 1935, not far from the enlightened metropolis of Hot Springs. And mm -hmm. the, the, I, I did leave a word out because it could yeah. be considered um, offensive, mm -hmm. but it might come to some people's surprise if you look up the quote, it does not denote, it actually denotes um, poor white settlers or white yeah. uh, mountain folks. Yes. That, and so we, we have uh, essentially um, <clears throat> poor whites practicing hoodoo on Christmas, old Christmas. Yes. Um, which, you know, basically this is, you know, hoodoo for protection for yes. the house, a hearth being the center of the house. Um, and fire in particular, but also lightning, was a very common problem and the most likely way you were going to lose your house, particularly at that time period. So, right. Um, right and uh, you know this this kind of offering typically is related to hoodoo and voodoo um mm -hmm. the flip side is the reading of entrails for divination so either protection or divination comes out of these kinds of practices and it's also something that you you're using something that normally you would use as food yes yes so obviously the the black hen the color of the hen 
I, mm -hmm. I would assume is crucial. Um, you know, um, I, I have also read, you know, that they would use a black hen if they could, but what, you know, not necessarily, um, that the, any chicken and sometimes other fowl, if they didn't have a chicken available. Um, mm -hmm. but I think a black hen was preferred. Right. Now, an, an important note on this is that this was in an era in which chickens were getting butchered on a weekly or daily basis in the yeah in the barnyard. So yeah. so having entrails around was not right. It is today in most cases. You don't you don't that's not part of our our everyday lives because mm -hmm. this is a general rule, but. I think to a, to a certain degree, it is the idea of using everyday things uh, for protection in ways that are essentially for magical protection. Yes. Coming back to hoodoo, and it's important to note that hoodoo is, while it shares certainly some similarities, it is separate from voodoo. Voodoo is a mm -hmm. recognized religion. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, involves invocation to specific demigods or sub-deities uh, who, who overlap over uh, traditional Catholic saints and the, the voodoo loa and have many different types of um, ways of approaching them for, for specific uh, entreaties, needs, um, or, or just interaction. <clears throat> Hoodoo is much more pragmatic it involves a lot of specific practices that are from, at, certainly at the time, uh, readily available materials. Now, mm -hmm. today, readily some of these traditionalist readily available materials are not as readily available. True. Uh, or, are for, or, or at least for a lot of people. Right, and uh, chicken guts being one of them. Uh, right. And at the... Or, or they're they're made up of materials that, while they might be readily available, modern uh, modern folks might be resistant to the idea of getting down and dirty with them. True, true. Um, although this particular kind of um, practice would be something that you you could find both in as a hoodoo uh, practice, as well as being used in voodoo as well. I mean, there, yes. there's overlap. So this is a this is a kind of activity that you would see in either practice. And and I think that it, in something that seems to be indicative uh, of hoodoo is a lot of the practices are very similar to to voodoo, uh, but simply coming from a almost pure pragmatism standpoint as opposed to coming at it from a religious standpoint. Right, pragmatism and just a, a more of a, I guess, a naturalist mm -hmm. um, point of view. <clears throat> Which brings up or begs the question, and I don't have the answer to this, how do chicken guts keep your house from getting struck by lightning? I'm not really sure. You know, I've, I've, I've looked uh, into this stuff and I haven't really found a really good answer other than um, the idea that giving something 
that is a a real sacrifice um, conveys a protective energy. And um, of course, the hearth would be where you would cook the chicken. Um, and so by placing part of the chicken under the hearth, it becomes protection. Yes. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the best answer I have at this point. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think that's fair. And it, it, doing the research for this actually got me thinking about a, a subject. There was a, oh, I think it was in Florida, but do not quote me on that, a, a case uh, in which uh, voodoo practitioners uh, were doing a traditionalist sacrifice, mm -hmm. uh, but they, they were doing it in suburbia uh, and folks got upset. And not on the cul-de-sac. <laughs> and, and I think it ended up resulting in a, um, you know, things going to court, and and ultimately the, the the case being made that the because voodoo is a, is a is a legitimate recognized religion, and and animal sacrifice is a part of uh, an integral part uh, of the religion that it is part of their freedom of religious expression to. Mm -hmm. Uh, to practice and if you don't like it well too bad it's not your it's not their fault that this isn't part of your culture um and, and it's very if easy on your front yard then it's not your business <laughs> yes. it, uh, um but i remember because it was, I, i've grown up in sort of you know one foot in one world and one foot in the other and it's very easy for me to be like ah, animal sacrifice yikes um, but I really remember that, you know, the striking argument that, that was also made just in conjunction with this, which was <clears throat> you modern people that are upset about this have no problem letting someone else kill all of your animals for you. It's true. You know, if you, I guess you're okay, if you don't see it, then of course there's a segment of that population that, you know, are abhorrent to the idea of animals being killed and consumed so yes and uh i think i do think that the you know the the haitian um uh, voodoo argument that says you know that uh what we're doing these animals lives mean something um they are part of this this mm -hmm. larger process and that that unlike your your you know possibly mass produced um, slaughtering houses that this is a lot more personal and humane and re and part of reality and that you know that, that, that there isn't anything necessarily wrong with that and I found that very insightful. I do too. I I I think there's there's I think there's a lot of validity to that. Not that I'm planning on. Actually, I don't even have a hearth. Isn't that sad? I have a stove. You don't. That's right. <laughs> I know. I have no hearth. thing. You know, you don't. <laughs> I have. I have no hearth, and I and I have no chicken intro. So I'm. 
poop out of luck tonight. Well, there, there you go. I've got the hearth, but I don't have any entrails handy, so. If you've made it this far in the podcast, folks, we're proud of you. <laughs> oh, boy. Let's see. Um, I like, I think, oh, go ahead. No, no, I said I had a, I had a thought and then I lost it when we <laughs> down that rabbit hole, sorry. I, I found it very interesting, the incorporation of elder, um, uh, of, of, uh, of elder shoots that elder yeah. is considered, uh, and, and for people who are going elder, um, uh, elder trees, elder berries, elder brush, and the fact that on and the lore is that on old christmas the the elderberries will sprout even in the frost or perhaps even mm -hmm. especially in the frost and some of the lore also includes roses uh the this image of roses in the snow uh new new greenery new growth uh shooting up in the midst of a snowstorm uh, mm -hmm. at midnight in the midst of the frost at a, a very magical occurrence of something that couldn't possibly happen having it happen and and my my grandmother would speak of that of various you know flowers blooming during frost or even snow in january and that meaning that it was supposed to be a good year. Yes, that, and again, the, the idea of uh, a magical event denoting good luck and mm -hmm. acting as divination. And, and I grew up always being, you know, hearing that um, an elder tree, an elderberry tree uh, was particularly good luck to have near your home. Yes. Yes, and now I do think it is is interesting. Of course, the um, uh, elder, the the particularly elderberry fruit, the berries, uh, are ha have a long history of medicinal use. Mm -hmm. That's and, true. Uh, and the the elder and the, there's various cultivars. Uh, the the elder holds very important significance in terms of magical tradition. Mm hmm. And, and, um, and then evergreens in particular, um, that early in the Ozarks, they would, they would have a, a service on old Christmas and often, um, in a shelter made out of evergreens it was not unusual. Right. And, and we've talked a lot about, you know, the, the, the evergreen, uh, symbolism is is important throughout Northern European lore, winter mm -hmm. lore uh, across the board, and you know in various aspects, and including me tempting fate with the possibility of getting my home haunted by goblins by leaving my tree up. But oh, that's just that's just a hell of something interesting going on. <laughs> I do my best. There was um, just a couple of, of points. This is a letter to the editor, um, Christmas from the Wayne County Journal Banner.com. Uh, 
of course, in coming off the elderberries, old timers would say that the elderberry sprouts on Christmas Eve, even if the ground's frozen and the green shoots could be seen under the snow. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this was this was during uh, a time when so many more people were associated with rural America. They farmed. They were association with farming, uh, et cetera. And so people were out working in these conditions uh, every day, often for mm-hmm. long, long periods of the day. They were were involved, and so consequently, if something was odd, if something stood out, it it, it stood out for good reason. Yes. And it, and something out of that ordinary, I think it often was associated with some of either an omen or, or luck. Yes. And it usually one of the two. Um, yeah. uh, omen and, and both sort of under the umbrella of divination. Yes. And Very much so. I, I think when, when you think about it, a lot of this type of lore fundamentally is divination that we don't tend to think about when we talk about it or recall it but that's really what it is yes and in in some cases it's you know that that sense of uh i'm going to see the future something that i i would posit and i don't know if i'm correct on this or not but i would posit is that especially when this was much more of a, you know, inner, built within the fabric of society. The younger, I'll say practitioner, but I, I mean it just as people who are engaging in the, in the lore, uh, younger being very uh, uh, results and opportunity focused. Yeah. The, the idea I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to see my, going uh, coming back to the dumb supper um i'm going to do all of these things and i'm going to you know see my husband my future fiance yeah uh, that sort of thing that's why we bob for apples although we've forgotten that that's why we bob for apples and and that sort of thing but as as the uh the the, the practitioner matures something that i i think seems to happen in many cases is is the idea is simply the idea that happenings around us mean something and everything is somehow interconnected yeah that yeah that the, the, there's a pattern there's a link that um gives larger meaning yes that you know that the, the idea that um the, the the universe is not as random as we think that it is which also is a is a largely certainly during the 20th century less somewhat less so now i'm waving at you strength theory um but a you know 20 later 19th well throughout 20th century secularism is basically everything's random nothing's connected Right, and uh, until they started figuring out that's not the case. Yes, and entanglement, etc. 
<laughs> the idea that all these things may actually be quite connected and in ways exactly. that you can possibly imagine. And, you know, not unlike Star Wars, the Force, everything, right. the Force is in everything, everything is the Force, uh, that sort of thing. I need to go back and watch Empire Strikes Back. But I, I have not watched Empire Strikes Back because I haven't had any donuts. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of everything being connected, uh, one of my most memorable childhood experiences was getting Empire Strikes Back on VHS the same weekend that my mom made fried donuts. And so the two are connected. For me, yes, yes, yes in, the, okay. in the large universe. And so if I'm for watching, minute, I, was, I was back, wondering what I was missing. <laughs> <laughs> I know. it's it's uh, it's it's uh, it's rather specific uh, but so consequently when i watch empire strikes back i really think that i need fried glazed donuts and Fair. i that's that's not really legitimately on my menu at the moment consequently i have not watched empire strikes back because i just don't know if my psyche could handle it but Fortunately, I have memorized the three films. We'll have to make you a tofu donut. <laughs> bean curd. It's all about the bean curd. That's right. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yes, the, the larger purpose, and I think depending upon where, where one, and you could actually... Uh, you could actually argue um, Jungian shadow on this <laughs> in terms of practitioner, because I think that True. there's, in terms of the this traditional rural and very much um, magical practices of earlier America, which are heavy in the Ozarks in terms of our traditions, that this divination of, of seeing an interconnectedness, depending upon one's perspective, it can certainly just, at, at the early onset of it, just give you this, this magical sense that the world is, is, is a magical place, mm -hmm. uh, which can imbue you with a certain amount of optimism. You can um, try to harness that for, for luck, uh, mm -hmm. for, for the, uh, I would say, and I don't necessarily mean this negatively, but the selfish purposes of trying to divine one's future. As, as I think that you, you age, you can, can kind of transition to one dominant side or the other, seeing uh, death omens everywhere you go or trying to avoid death omens. Yeah. Uh, or simply seeing this larger, more nuanced magical purpose that, that there is meaning and you might find it uh, simply within the larger nature. You might find it within a, and as we're talking about tonight with these, these, uh, this Christmas lore, finding it within a, uh, a religious context that mm -hmm. I, I honestly think is very, um, is very beautiful. It's very um, kind, and and I think worthy of a lot of respect, regardless of what someone's um, religious views are. I, I agree. 
and that said, maybe a good place to pivot to ghost stories. Absolutely. Um, much <laughs> like much like Yule, much like winter solstice, uh, old Christmas and old Christmas Eve was considered to be a time when the uh, the dead uh, walked, talked, and uh, at times interacted rather uh, rather fervently. And I, and I think a lot of people would be really surprised that there are so many you know times during the darker part of the year that that happens and through sort of the holiday season people think of Christmas Ghost and the Christmas Carol um, by Dickens uh, as the ghost story but old Christmas was supposed to be a time that ghosts could walk there actually walk the earth I mean we, we are um, really similar to All Saints Day yes um which is i think is a really is a really fascinating aspect i think that it's i i'm still processing exactly how i feel about this because as, as we've noted many times in terms of paranormal research and doing investigations that paranormal activity can happen pretty much any time oh yeah um, and for a very wide variety of, of causal reasons and it so much activity can happen throughout the day throughout the evening it there the, there isn't you know specific times in which the the dark magic happens and then other times that it doesn't paranormal activity is surprisingly normal and surprisingly common and surprisingly all the time but i do think that there is important significance to the idea that specific dates and times are associated with this type of occurrence well and particularly ones with omens or yeah. some sort of luck again the two subjects seem to be coming up um of course christmas carol is about omens uh, yes and uh particular ghost story out of Illinois, actually on the edge of the Ozarks, um, yes. has to do with luck and retribution. Um, it does. Karma, basically. And a another, another name, I believe, for Epiphany is Twelfth Night. Yes. And so Twelfth Night overlaps Epiphany, overlaps Old Christmas. And this is... Um, from uh, yeah, make sure that I <clears throat> get all this uh, from Christmas to Twelfth Night in Southern Illinois by John J. Dunphy, and John Dunphy, John J. Dunphy has a great uh, bookstore in Alton, Illinois. Yes, that, uh, and... we have shopped. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so huge shout out to to John Dunphy in in Alton, Illinois, visit his bookshop, say hello to his various cats and houseplants that are growing in the window. The <laughs> cats are not growing in the window, the houseplants are. I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that it's just plants, <laughs> <laughs> but, but John is delightful. Yes, and uh, loved getting to visit with him and, uh, and phenomenal. Uh, I 
we have books. Uh, yes, we both did. Yeah. yeah yes, because that that is how that goes. Uh, do you want Do you want to tell the story? This uh, this ghost story that he collected. I, I guess I could. It, uh, um, it originally was written by uh, Roy Helton. Um, that um, before sunup on old Christmas morning, and that um, a young woman named Lomi Carter stops by a cabin of the man who killed her husband. Tolby Barton, uh, the murderer, isn't home, but Sally Ann, his wife, is, and invites her in uh, to rest for a while. When asked where she has been so early, Lomi replies that she visited the graveyard near the Salt Lake Meadows where Barton had killed her man. There she had seen her husband's ghost. The specter's head was still bleeding where Barton's bullet had passed completely through it. Lomi tells Sally Ann that the uh, ghost kissed her and said that Jesus had forgiven Barton for the murder. He then whispered something to Lomi. She doesn't tell Sally Ann what it is before vanishing. When Sally Ann again remarks that Tolby isn't home, Lomi reveals that she shot him to death with her late husband's rifle. Sally Ann says that she heard two shots and the second gunshot, Lomi explains, came from the rifle of Tolby who managed to kill her before he died. Sally Ann had been talking to the ghost on old Christmas morning. Um, now, it, it, there's a lot of symmetry going on. Yes, there um, is. I, I find it interesting that there's a lot of unspoken things going on too, that um, Sally Ann apparently knows something's going on because she heard the shots, but doesn't bother to say anything. Mm -hmm. um, which makes me wonder whether she already knows. That's a good point. And of course, then you 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 also want to know why her husband why why is he there with a gun early in the morning at the place that he had already killed someone, mm -hmm. except for perhaps that he expected trouble. Maybe he expected the ghost because it was old Christmas who did appear, although I'm not sure if he thought that a gun would help. But then Lomi showed up and... And they went at it. And they went at it. But of course, if, you, if you're talking about luck and retribution, it's not even again, because now three people are gone. Yes. Yes, they are. So if it, I were Sally Ann, I would not go to the Salt Lick the next old Christmas morning. <laughs> no, no. And that is, you, you tend to see it. I feel like you see with, with elements of these stories, one, one of two extremes, either tempting fate by, by just walking straight into it, being drawn like a moth to a flame, or... I'm, I'm going to have absolutely nothing to do with any of this. I'm leaving. Yeah. <laughs> well, in this case, uh, you know, both walked straight into it with guns in hand. So. Yes. 
Yes, yes, they did. <laughs> it's I, I I think it's an incredible story, and it it does something that a lot of hmm, a lot of our our more civilized aspects would never touch about Christmas, which is not just ghosts, murder, retribution, ghosts, uh, killing people. There, there's, there's a lot of things going on here. And at the same time, the way, the way it's told, it is almost um, just simply told as, as poetic prose. Yes, yes. Um, and, and, and I think, again, one thing is that everyone involved had to, had to have some sort of hidden knowledge for all of the events to happen, including Sally Ann, the one survivor. Yes, uh, which implies, uh, by, by its very nature of hidden knowledge, uh, implies the employment of the occult. Yes, very much so. Now, now that we have ghosts on Old Christmas, just winter tales themselves. Yes. And, and I think Fair Charlotte, or in some versions, Frozen Charlotte, is. I, I, I always love this story. And of course, it's been done as a folk ballad many times. One thing I really like about it that's unique is it it is something that was started in North America. It is not a folk story or ballad that came over and morphed. Right, right. A uniquely North American. Mm -hmm. And... It, and and you can you can really read that into the the subtext of the things that are going on. This is a um, something that's clearly associated with the North American winter, but also North American culture. Yeah. That um, and and there's so for for people who are are not familiar, the basic synopsis is that Fair Charlotte, uh, super short, non poetic version of fair charlotte is that it is in the depths of winter not the kind of uh time when you'd want to be uh transiting about in uh, uh fashionable but lightweight clothing mm -hmm. and there is a, a big party a dance a ball that she wants to attend Mm -hmm. uh, her her mother typically entreats her that she needs to bundle up as uh, almost is all but universal amongst teenagers they're going I don't want to look warm I want to look good or yes. I at least want to look trendy or want to look like my peers and uh, Charlotte is not only very young and beautiful, she is also very fashion conscious and insists that she is gonna be just fine. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, her driver, and it's typically associated, this is a horse-drawn sleigh. 
Yeah. Um, uh, or a type of sleigh, and off they go into the into the frigid darkness, and he keeps saying, "Are you okay?" She keeps saying, "Just keep on," because she doesn't want to be late to the dance. By the way, she chose not to be bundled up in a big coat or anything that would spoil her fancy outfit. And they finally pull up to the party. Her fiance or betrothed or boyfriend or whomever he is comes out to see his beautiful girl and she's frozen to death. Yes. And, you know, it... Um... I don't know. It's it, it's it's very it's it's a, a haunting tale. Not trying to use a pun, but it it, it really is. Um, and uh, I do wonder if if there was a grain of truth somewhere that something similar happened that started the legend in the the folk song. But it easily easily could have been. Um, it is important as a, as, as, a, as a native North American ballad, it is native to North America, not just the United States. So this is, this is a Canadian and United States um, historical ballad. Uh, it's been found uh, in Newfoundland, it's been found in South Dakota, and, and it's also been found uh, and recorded here in the Ozarks. That was... I think the first time it was recorded in this part of the country was, I think, the 1920s. That, that, um, is, that, that sounds about right. The, uh, the Max Hunter uh, collection in Missouri State does have uh, the song on record being sung in 1963 in Fayetteville, mm -hmm. Arkansas by Lula Davis. And uh, folks can go to the Max Hunter uh, collection and actually listen to that song. It's quite good. The, the yes. is quite good. Well, in a more, um, even more modern version um, is uh, uh, Frozen Charlotte. Yes, by Natalie Merchant. Yes. And, and, and this was so prevalent that it actually created a trend of, of um, porcelain dolls. And they, were, they, they yes. tend to be called penny dolls or, or charlottes or, or um, frozen charlies but um, and I've, I've seen them before I don't have I don't actually have one but they're just little dolls that typically would be baked into miniature cakes and it's, it's um, bringing us right back to epiphany and saturnalia exactly and the idea was um, I've heard various lore, but if you got the cake with the doll in it, then it was some sort of good fortune. Um, mm -hmm. And often um, for preteen girls and early teen girls, uh, it was an omen that you were going to meet your future husband. So it's, it's divination. Yes, it goes back it's to divination. And they were very popular from the mid 1800s until the 1920s and 30s. And every once in a while, if you've, I, I've seen them in antique stores and so forth. 
uh, and I don't know, there, there is sort of just a, a, a chilling effect about them that they, um, dolls don't usually bother me, but it's something about the frozen Charlottes have always just kind of creeped me out. <laughs> I think that's very, very fair. It's, it is odd. And, and of course, you know, one uh, uh, association with the story is certainly dating back to around the Civil War. Um, another name for the, the fair Charlotte story was a corpse went to a ball. Yes, yes, um, and and I think maybe that is a bit of catharsis, basically cathartic um, art dealing with just the mass death and casualties during uh, during the war. Although ironically, it's the young girl that dies instead of a young soldier. It is, but it, it does speak just to the the mortality rate of the era of these That's previous true. eras. That's and, true. And the idea that <laughs> you know we, we've all we've all heard the saying you can catch your death of the cold. This and is, literally she did. And literally she did. Uh, but in and possibly this is why it resonates much like uh, Mm -hmm. you know, Anne of Green Gables uh, reenacting the Lady of Shalott, the idea that it's, it's very poetic, it's very beautiful. You don't, um, you know, die uh, bedridden from pneumonia. Uh, you died stately in a, in a sleigh uh, demanding that you got your own way and you arrive frozen, but beautiful. Yes, I mean, that's almost, you know, as they say, you know, be careful what you ask for, you may get it, you know, I mean, that's just, it's like, <laughs> what she asked for. Very much so, you know, it's, it really, it really has the, it, obviously, there's a number of four elements, um, Richard Dockery and Young, Richard Young and Judy Dockery Young uh, recorded Frozen Charlotte in mm -hmm. their Ozark Ghost Stories book. And, yeah. Uh, that was actually my first introduction to the story, not as a song, but as, a, as an oral story for, mm -hmm. for traditional storytelling of the Ozarks. So it does have a, a great deal of uh, uh, ancestral gravitas in, uh, here in the hills. And at, at the same time, it was very interesting because a couple of years after I read the story, the story resonated. It is a chilling and memorable story. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, and again, it's a little bit of that uh, tragedy on a liminal space that not dissimilar from The Burning Bride of Fayetteville. Uh, right. Beautiful girl uh, at, a, at a, a point in which it really should be a very uh, happy or festive moment turning into this uh, exquisite tragedy. Exactly. Um, and that might be a good way to segue into the tales of the lost child. Yes. Uh, which... because, because where it, where Charlotte is this exquisite beauty and, and perfection, so to speak. Um, the lost child 
motif in the Ozarks uh, is just the opposite. Very true. It, it, it's base. It's basically based on the Raggedy Man. Um, in the traditional English sense, um, and um, the um, sort of the sort of the the story that tell first told it so well was written about forty years ago, and um, it's titled "The Lost Boy, the Ozarks," and I. I left my note in the other room with the author. I'd have to find it again. But it is, you can, you can look uh, it up. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's available on backpacker.com uh, yeah. or, you know, Google search The Lost Boy of the Ozarks. It is a really fascinating, it is fiction, it is. Uh, but, but it is a unique bit of fiction that it, it's clear that the author has. Uh, ties to Southwest Missouri. Very much so. And it is, it, and, and that this is a, a compliment to, to the writing. It is written in such a way that it can very easily be taken as factual. Yes. And in the idea of basically a child that ends up lost in the woods and remains and is not necessarily human anymore. Right, that, that you're making that transition. Now, I do want to, and I don't have notes on this, but um, just in, engage a little bit with this, uh, the English uh, raggedy man lore. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, um, and and that's when and when when we get over to the movie The Lost Child, and they specifically refer to the the tatterdemalion. A yes. tatterdemalion in English lore, before it got connotation of being some sort of spirit or demon, uh, literally meant a raggedy man, um, and a raggedy man would be someone that was in the wild, in the woods usually, ragged clothing, um, a good sort of use of the term as analogy um, that people might be familiar with would be the Mad Max movie Thunderdome when Tina Turner refers to Mel Gibson as Raggedy Man, that that Mad Max in that movie fits that motif. Yes. Yes. And, and so, and, uh, yeah. I, I was going to say it. It in in some to some degree, then it might have some connotation with the Wild Man or the Green Man. Yes, uh, I, I, I do think so. Um, if you go back far enough, I'm, that's my guess. Um, and then over time, the idea of a tatterdemalion became a spirit or demon in the forest. Right. Um, that was a, a trickster 
that would appear childlike to draw you in, uh, very similar to a lot of the different lore and creatures that we've talked about in the Dark Ozarks um, that uh, luring people to their demise. Yes, and, and this is something that, that there's a, a unique crossover from fiction into fact, back into fiction, back into fact, uh, because an increasing number of actual reports in regards of uh, inhuman entities uh, mm -hmm. luring people or stalking people mm -hmm. do come in. And the, these, the, these uh, and, and by do come in, I mean the reports do come in. I'm not telling the inhuman entity that they can come in right. uh, because I'm gonna say no in that particular regard. But that there's, there's just a lot of oddness that I think lends, it, it does a variety of things. One thing it lends credence to uh, some of these reports that I think in previous times would have been dismissed as somebody just being crazy or wanting attention. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree. And, and, you know, a number of these, have, you know, have come to us directly um, in contexts that have credibility with the, with the narrative. Um, that's at least something is going on. Um, mm -hmm. But kind of flipping over back over to the Lost Boy of the Ozarks, the idea is that that this child followed a, a little sister into the woods because you know looking for her, she disappears and he you know basically lingers and and um, years later is found and has not aged and what is he you know. Um, yes. and then, um, and it's a very well done story. Um, then, um, in about what, 20, 2018, um, a movie, which not only was set in the Ozarks, but was filmed in the Ozarks, actually in the West Plains area, um, The Lost Child. Yes. Um, basically retells this type of story particularly with the Tatter Um And uh, we've seen it uh, yeah. at, at an event that we, we did. And I find it very interesting, not only for the idea of this spirit or creature, um, which um, the idea is it's looking for a replacement for its apparent uh basically in the movie yes which is uh, uniquely chilling it is it is <clears throat> but another aspect i find very interesting is that there there's a there's a lot of depiction of hoodoo as practice true true and and i'm i'm assuming that that is very deliberate Yes, I, it is deliberate and, and, and I think pretty faithful. Um, and um, But the idea basically being that there can be things out there that particularly seem to um, 
make themselves known in these dark, dark times, cold times, um, almost like the cold, the winter brings them through more too. Right. There's, so the, um, as, as you noted, um, uh, the film Lost Child was released in 2018 and the uh, very simple synopsis of the film is that, quote, Fern, an army veteran, returns home in order to look for her brother, only to discover an abandoned boy lurking in the woods behind her childhood home. After taking in the boy, she searches for clues to his identity and discovers local folklore about a malevolent, life-draining spirit that comes in the form of a child, the Tatterdemalion. Yes. And there, there's, there are, are a number of key hoodoo elements, as you noted, that are included in the, in the film. Something that is interesting about this particular read of the Tatterdemalion, and this is also a read on the lost boy of the Ozarks, is a near vampiric quality. Yes, yes. Um, if, if not literally, definitely energy and life force that, um, that it, and I, I like, I, I like the, the supposition that it does not have to be a physical attack. Right. <clears throat> and the, the concern, and we're not giving any spoilers away, highly recommend that you watch the film. It's very well rated on Rotten Tomatoes uh, and for good reason. Yeah, well, I, I enjoyed it. I, I did too, immensely. It's just beautifully filmed. I, and I love when films in the Ozarks are actually filmed in the Ozarks. Same. With a lot of local actors as well. Yes, and that, that adds a level of mm, just of, a, of an impossible to fake reality. I mean, it, it just yeah. it adds contextualization you can't get otherwise. It's more authentic. It is. And, but the idea that, that the Tatterdemalion, and, and there's a number, and I think this is interesting, a number of um, folkloric entities associated with this, that they, that they drain you of your life in, in ways that you don't understand. Yes. And then uh, the protagonist at the same time is coming, you know, basically um, stepping, she's been away for a number of years. She's coming back in and being exposed to um, this witchcraft and hoodoo practices that she initially fears and thinks is a, as a threat when in reality, most of it's being done actually trying to protect her yes and those around her yes which i think is is it's it's very well crafted the 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 themes the ideas uh the conflict is very well crafted and something that was, that was interesting to me and i think this is valuable just across the board because we 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 explore the, our own reality through mm -hmm. the categorization of fiction i think a lot of people who love fiction don't necessarily realize that and that a lot of people who might say, oh, I only read nonfiction may not realize there's an enormous amount of truth in the world around us explored correctly within fiction. Very true, very true. And, and you know, a little oh. bit of symmetry with this too, from where we 
almost started uh, is that a lot of what she ends up taking in from the people around her to protect herself and home and hearth, the practices very similar to the idea of the entrails under the hearth. Yes. <clears throat> yes, it is. Particularly against fire. Right. So there's there there is that symmetry that exists. And uh, the uh, the, 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 I thought there's a really good uh, analysis uh, of the film on uh, ghosts of um, ghosts of antifascismpast.org. I was trying to read all of the <laughs> uncapitalized consonants and not being successful in that. Ghosts of antifascism past.org um entitled tattered demanding the antidote to the horror stephen king take with that what you want but there's a great uh categorization of the your three standard types of of horror folk horror supernatural horror and psychological horror folk horror often set in rural or deindustrialized landscapes with poor whites as protagonists um supernatural horror the threats our characters face and therefore, the source of the fear and terror they express and we vicariously feel is of supernatural origin, i.e. the exorcist. Um, or psychological horror, here the reliability of the narrator and or protagonist is questioned frequently. Their sanity is suspect. Uh, for example, Donnie Darko. Mm -hmm. And with, with a, a great deal of ambiguity. And so... <clears throat> that... Uh, oh, and horror realism um as well and the idea that that uh tetra demalion actually exists at a at a four-point crossroads of all of these categories it really does which makes it very interesting and and thought-provoking i think if you if people go watch it they'll they'll be thinking about it for quite a while afterwards Yes, and and it's honestly it's a fun film. Um, it is and for, for people who are like, oh my gosh, I don't like horror movies. It's not a slasher film. No, no, um, not a horror film in that sense. No, it's it's not Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's not Friday the Thirteenth. It's not uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. But if you, if you enjoy the things we talk about here, you're you're going to enjoy the film. Very much so. Very much so. I, I loved it. I want to see it again. I'm thinking about Me buying too. it. <laughs> Me oh. too. Me too. Um, that might be a good good place to kind of uh, wrap up. Um, coming full circle. So there, there is a lot of connection between Old Christmas and uh, the supernatural, the paranormal, horror. Yes. Um, yes. And and the, so, the it is so so many of these folkloric stories and folkloric stories associated with with christmas and the ozarks honestly do have a folk horror element which i think is very phenomenal it's easy to overlook with the way that the stories are presented but if you were to film them the the elements would be there i agree so we uh, we appreciate everyone, and don't forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. 
Thank you again to Always Buying Butts and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping bring the Dark Ozarks to everyone. On the next episode, we are going to be discussing the Ozark connections to the dark history of Texas and more. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. We thank everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks.